Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey back into history, we're going to take a look at the Gibson Guitar Company out of Kalamazoo, Michigan. So come along and join me. This is a fascinating history. So it all began with Orville Gibson. He was born in New York in 1856, and Orville headed west to Kalamazoo, Michigan in the 1870s. And he was finding employment as a clerk, and he spent every free moment that he had handcrafting mandolins. And then in 1896, Gibson was able to produce mandolins on a full-time basis, and he opened his store at 114 South Burdock Street. Three years later, he moved his shop to his residence on the second floor, of 104 East Main Street. Now, Gibson preferred using old furniture wood to make his instruments, believing it to be more durable and of higher quality. And this emphasis on quality and craftsmanship limited Gibson's output to only six or seven instruments a year. But this changed in 1902 when Gibson was approached by five men who offered to provide money to establish a manufacturing company or basically a manufacturing facility for his instruments. So Gibson accepted, and the Gibson Mandolin Guitar Manufacturing Company was incorporated in 1904. Under the agreement, Gibson would serve as a consultant, training workers in the fine art of instrument building. Apparently frustrated by this new arrangement, Gibson moved back to New York in 1909 where he died in 1918. However, the company carried on. With an aggressive sales policy, the Gibson Mandolin Guitar Manufacturing Company flourished despite the absence of its founder. First, it moved to a larger facility at 523 East Harrison Street. And then in 1917, the company moved to its permanent location at 225 Parsons Street, where it remained for nearly seven decades. Over the years, the Parsons Street plant expanded five times into a 120,000 square foot building, which spread over an entire city block. That is a lot of mandolins and guitars. Up until the 1920s, Gibson had specialized almost exclusively in mandolins. But as America's musical taste evolved during the 1920s and 30s, so did Gibson's, and they began to produce banjos and ukuleles and guitars becoming increasingly popular. In the early 20s, the company introduced a truss rod neck construction, which streamlined a guitar's neck, now standard in most guitars. This innovation allowed easier fingering and faster playing. Now, during the 1920s, Gibson was also one of the first manufacturers to experiment with the electric guitar. 20 years before it found popular success. In 1934, Gibson introduced the Super 400 guitar, which revolutionized standards for tone and volume. Unfortunately, the consumer buying power had been drastically reduced during the Depression. To remedy this, Gibson produced a lower-cost Kalamazoo line of guitars that helped keep the company afloat during the lean years. Now, during World War II, Gibson contributed to the war effort by manufacturing electrical and mechanical radar assemblies. They manufactured glider skids and precision machine gun rods. The company was even awarded three Army-Navy E-1 
Awards for Production Excellence. So Gibson experienced remarkable growth in the 1950s, and this was aided in part by the introduction of the famous Les Paul guitar in 1952. Named after the famous guitarist, it was designed to his specifications. The company's success continued during the 1960s when it manufactured over a thousand guitars a day and employed over 1,000 workers, but a sharp nationwide decline in guitar sales contributed to Gibson's difficulties during the 1970s and 1980s. The company moved its headquarters to Nashville, Tennessee in 1981, and three years later, it closed the Kalamazoo plant, sadly. The former Gibson employees soon formed a new company called Heritage Guitar Incorporated and set up shop in part in the old Gibson plant. With Gibson's retreat to Tennessee, the success of Heritage Guitar guarantees that Orville Gibson's guitar trade will continue in Kalamazoo indefinitely. But over the years, Gibson was a trailblazer in acoustic guitar design, and they developed such storied models as the J45 and the Southern Jumbo, which remained iconic body shapes to this day. If this wasn't enough, the company would change the fortunes of players forever when they used a cutaway that was developed in 1939. And this was an innovation that allowed never-before-seen upper fret access for jazz and blues cats of the day. And the concept soon caught on, and it became sort of an empowerment for players, and it would change guitar playing forever. And that was kind of the big innovation in design during that period. And of course, another thing that happened during World War II, as it neared the end, Gibson was purchased by the Chicago Musical Instrument Company in 1944 with the expectation that the demand for guitars would hit an all-time high. And of course, and as history bears out, they weren't wrong about this. And the following decades would be boom years for Gibson, where the brand achieved quite an iconic level with the society out there. And it was a hallmark of where instruments were created for many years. In 1950, a man named Ted McCarty took over the president of Gibson, and he introduced a lot of new, dynamic, innovative guitars, including designs like the P90 Pickup and the ES-175 and the Triple Pickup Electric Guitar and many other models. Uh, And that was before they brought in the Les Paul design, and they brought him in to create a signature guitar, as I mentioned earlier. And Les Paul's real name was Lester Pulsfuss, and he came to McCarty in the 1940s with the idea for a solid body guitar that he called the log. And McCarty kind of rejected the log, which was something of a a Heath Robinson construction is what it was called. And by the 1950s, though, uh, Gibson had a problem. Leo Fender from Fender Guitars was becoming a challenging competitor in the industry. So by 1951, McCarty revisited with Paul and they began to work on their own solid body, a single cut design. And it would bear the guitarist name on the headstock, the Gibson Les Paul. And it uh, became a smash hit right out of the design gate and it became something legendary in the guitar world. Now historically it's kind of hard to firmly state when Gibson guitars entered their golden age but there's perhaps no more hallowed period in the history of any guitar company than when the instrument when it was being made in Kalamazoo between say 1958 and 1960. For starters 1958 saw the arrival of the world's first commercial semi-hollow 
guitar, and it was the model ES-335. And there's guitars that are almost as important to popular music as the Les Paul and Gibson's Canon. But the instruments basically were wonderfully versatile and expressive, and they were also very reliable for musicians. And they blended a lot of warmth and organic sound that was inspiring to those creating music of the day. But like any industry where style is part of the product line, by the 1960s, the Les Paul sales were beginning to flag a little bit, and so they did a, a new radical r overhaul of the designs. Uh, they got rid of the single-cut arch-top designs, and they came in with a thin, contoured, solid-body design with uh, two-pointed horns to enable even better upper fret access. It was a new look, you know? It was a new approach to the guitar design, and it was a lot different than the earlier ones. But after the McCarty era, it became difficult for Gibson. And then in 1969, the brand's parent company, Chicago Musical Instruments, was sold to a South American brewing conglomerate. And then in 1974, Gibson was broken off and became part of Norland Industries. The Norland era would become synonymous with corporate mismanagement and a decline in the quality of Gibson's instruments would follow. And it was a fact ironically, that would drive many of the 70s guitar icons to reappraise several Gibson from the 50s and 60s, including the Les Paul and the Firebird and the Flying V and the Explorer, and give them new life. And then in 1974, Gibson opened a second facility in Nashville, um, and for years it was split with the production between Tennessee and Michigan while gradually moving into the focal point of the music city in Nashville, they eventually did close the plant in 1983 in Kalamazoo, leaving Kalamazoo behind for good. And by 1986, Gibson was effectively bankrupt, and it was struggling to keep pace with the demands of 80s shred guitarists. And that same year, the company was purchased for $5 million by David Berryman and a new CEO, Henry Jacuziewicz. And the mission was simple, restore Gibson's name and reputation to what it once was. And so quality control picked up significantly, and a focus was put on acquiring other companies and offering an in-depth analysis of which models were the most popular, and they began an effort to replicate those popular models and bring life back to the brand and restore the brand name. So the Jacuziewicz era of Gibson was somewhat maligned in recent years, and it was kind of criticized, but at the same time, the brand did survive and endure. And by the turn of the millennium, however, things were starting to get a little bit strange. Gibson had always been a company that placed innovation and forward thinking at its heart, but gradually the company began to move in a direction that alienated it from its customer base and its audience. And Gibson began buying up smaller companies such as Baldwin and Steinberger and Kramer and others in the 90s. And by the early 2000s, it became clear that Gibson wanted to give the guitar world the future if it was ready for it or not. But perhaps the biggest disconnect between Gibson and its audience came in 2015 when the entire Gibson range was overhauled to 
include wider necks and adjustable brass nut with zero fret and a G-Force robot tuners and things like that that the, the fans didn't really appreciate. They were complaining about it and they really just were trying to get the company to just offer them the guitars they wanted, which was some of the classic designs and models that had been so successful. And by 2018, the company was in dire financial straits and it Chapter 11 bankruptcy was filed in May of that year. But Gibson was rescued from bankruptcy by a hedge fund, and they removed Jacuzziewicz, and they were bringing the company back under the stewardship of some of the older leaders that had been with the company. And since then, the company has been working its way back to handle the negative publicity that it had for its consumers and those in the industry. So that's a little bit of information from guitar.com about some of the history of Gibson guitars. So the company had kind of a roller coastering history, but the history of when it was in Kalamazoo was perhaps its most prosperous years, and it was a tremendous reputation for the city of Kalamazoo, and it was kind of an, uh, a landmark-type business for that community. And if you look at the city of Kalamazoo and the historical companies that came from that city in here in southwest Michigan. You have Gibson Guitars is one of the ones that people will think about a lot. Uh, Checker Motors is the other one. And there's several other ones that are smaller, but those two usually stand out as among the most prominent ones that had a profound iconic influence on culture around the country. And uh, the, the Checker Motors for the Checker cabs that they produced that were so popular in cities around the world. And uh, they showed up in all kinds of films and so forth. And I've done a whole podcast episode on that already before. And then, of course, Gibson Guitars, you know, part of the music industry from that period, anywhere from the peak of their entertainment industry in the 50s to all of the 70s and 80s, there was Gibson Guitars were interwoven into the music fabric of the country. So, a very important history for the city of Kalamazoo. But that's going to do it for today's journey through history. A lot of this information came right from their websites and a couple of different websites. One from the Kalamazoo Library and the other one from Guitars.com covering some of the history of Gibson. And uh, I don't claim to be a guitar aficionado, so if I mispronounce some of the names involved in this one, please accept my humblest apologies. And that being said, if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a review or rating on whatever app that you are listening on. And be sure to check out my website at uh, michaeldelaware.com and message me if you have any suggestions for future podcast episodes or if you know of any guests that I should reach out to. Got a great guest coming up this Sunday. And if you're on Facebook, I would like you to go over to Michael Delaware Author. It's very easy to find. Just search Michael Delaware Author and like the page. I've got a book coming out in the spring of 2024, so I'd like to encourage people to like that page on Facebook. So once again, it's Michael Delaware Author, A-U-T-H-O-R, and um, check that out. Like the page. So when I make the big announcement in the first quarter, you guys can be among the first people to hear about it. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. <laughs>